Hey, everybody. Welcome to The Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon, as ever. Ed, um, Ed, I this is what I want to talk about at the beginning, the sort of top of the show banter, as it were. You have uh, some pretty exciting kind of news or something pretty exciting happened to you today because uh, several months ago, months and months and months ago, we when we were in Rome... Uh, for a couple of meetings, you were asked to appear in a, uh, a documentary. And uh, you did appear in that documentary, and uh, or you, you were interviewed for a documentary about Vatican finances. And uh, that documentary, insofar as I can tell, released today. So it's kind of an exciting day because you're, you're in a documentary. Um, let's not oversell this. I, the, the Financial Times was doing a, a video pricey of the current Vatican financial thing around the London building and Cardinal Betchew's trial and things like that. And I mean, it's about half an hour long and it has you and some other journalists and a lot of B-roll and narration. And I mean, it's a documentary. I, I, think, of it, I think of it as a very excellent audiovisual explainer of um, the nuts and bolts, not even the nuts, but like if you need a quick, if like you need to understand the London building fiasco in 20 minutes, this this is the thing that will get you there, which I, I'm grateful that that exists. Um, I'm even more grateful that they invited me to participate. That was nice. Um, it was me. It was Miles Johnson, who's the FT's Rome correspondent, who is excellent. Um, hardly recommend his coverage. He wrote a piece, I don't know, 18 months ago, maybe, on organized crime infiltration of the Italian hospital system, which is just awesome. Strong recommend. Uh, anyway, Miles is in there. Um, uh, Maria, who's a, an investigative journalist in Italy, is also. I mean, the two of them. Okay, are the this people. isn't what I want to talk about. Oh, I'm glad Miles is in it. I'm glad you're in it. I'm glad you. But here's the thing about the documentary, Ed, and it's a documentary. Um, you made it, of course, for an English newspaper, the Financial Times. Um, would would you call that accurately an English newspaper, or ought I be referring to it as a British newspaper or some other? Uh, no, actually, for the for the purposes of this documentary, it's definitely English, and I tell you for why. Um, the reason we record, at least I recorded my parts of this in July uh, when we were in Rome, and it's come out this week. And the reason for that is they spent a long time with the lawyers to get this through. And the reason they spent a long time with the lawyers is the Financial Times is published out of London and in England. Okay, so it's English, English liable law is a thing. Yeah, English liable law is a thing and a very strong thing. And Okay, so um, you... Uh, you um, You're driving this train somewhere and I'm getting apprehensive. I am. You uh, appeared in this English documentary, as it were, and you didn't sound the way that you sound right now. You did the thing which you do, which I, what I really want to talk about is whether you know this, but when I listened to this documentary, it, it was you, I was looking at you on the screen, and as I watched the documentary, there you were, but you spoke um, like an Englishman, like you had just come out of um, uh, the set of Mary Poppins or something like that, and I, I and I think I've said this to you before when you're on English TV or English radio or something like that, but you have this thing, I think you code switch, as it were, because you um, are were born as an American, but have spent most of your life in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and, and now you're back. You can speak um, with either an American accent or a British accent. But what I wonder, Ed, is do you know that? Do you know that you're doing it? Um, I don't think like, that's happened. I mean, I've, I watched the documentary. You watched it, right? And you I heard that you don't I, sound no, like I, you sound. No, not only that, I watched it. And then a friend of ours said much the same as what you just said. And I said, that's, that doesn't, I didn't notice anything. I walked by, I didn't step on a single vowel. My 
my pronunciation of words is exactly the same. I just, so you don't know. It's not only that you don't know you're doing it. Fine. It's it's that, look, if you want to go to the tape, that's fine. But find me one word I'm pronouncing differently there than here. Okay. Catholics expect, and rightly so, the church to hold itself to a much higher moral standard than a corporation or an NGO or even a government. They expect a higher level of accountability. And I think the church is learning some very hard lessons about transparency right now. So you heard that. Um, you heard yourself being English. But did you hear it? Could you tell that you did not sound like you sound right now? No, I, I, I absolutely don't accept that there is any difference. I mean, there is a rhythm and cadence that um, proper pronunciation brings with it. And I admit I, you know, I sort of adopt a New Jersey slur so that you can understand me on this podcast. And, but I, you <laughs> know, I don't the weirdest thing. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, it's just the, and I will not, thing, I mean, I, I, I do sometimes play up the American accent so people can understand me. It's true that it's difficult to get a cab to take you anywhere in DC. Uh, if you, if you don't have a, a sort of Yankee twang, um, that is a fact, but no, I, 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 I think you're wildly overselling this. And, and also I make no apologies. I lived there for 25 years. I, my parents paid damn good money for me to be taught to speak properly. I'm not going to, I make no apologies. Well, I don't whatsoever. think that's true, Ed, because as I understand it, generally speaking, the English don't, um, or can't teach their children how to speak. I don't understand. Surely you know that it's a problem that the English can't teach their children how to speak. Is this, is this a joke? Is this, is this a setup to a punchline? <laughs> are you, are you um, serious? Norwegians learn Norwegians and the Greeks have taught their Greek. In France, every Frenchman knows his language from A to Z. Um, Arabians learn Arabian with the speed of summer lightning and Hebrews learn it backwards, which is absolutely frightening. But use proper English, you regard it as, a, you, you have never seen My Fair Lady? Oh, 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 oh. A long time ago, yes. Um, no, it's. I went to one of those, you like to caricature where I went to school as Hogwarts, which just shows a debased understanding of literature, as well as the English educational system. But leaving that to one side, I, I went to more than one school where I, I had, I still believe I do, um, what was termed an American accent, and I was corrected. And I, I had my pronunciation corrected in class by the teachers, and I was made to repeat things until I spoke properly. Um, and, you know, I was on occasion punished for speaking improperly if I, you know, didn't didn't my pronounce goodness. things correctly. I've seen I, enough of the Crown documentary to know that that probably means you had to pick up a bunch of... Um, like large cinder blocks and make a wall out of them or something like that. I'm very, very sorry. <laughs> no, that's, um, that's just recess. That's just fun. I... <laughs> you're free. You're free to speak here as you wish, but listeners, I, um, I'm going to post a link to Ed's documentary. In fact, I've already posted a link to Ed's documentary <sighs> on social media, and we're going to put a link to Ed's documentary in the notes for this show. Oh, for... And what I would like you to do is just weigh in, Oh you know, no. send us no, a there's note, no need for this. Um, this is why? Send us a telegram or something. Um, however you'd like to be in touch with us to just let us know whether you hear what I'm talking about. And if you hear what I'm talking about, whether you, um, whether you think that Ed is, uh, con entirely conscious of what I'm talking about and engaged in a bit of a cover up about this or whether or not you believe as Ed says that he can't even hear the difference. And I'll be interested to hear what our listeners have to say. I'd like to thank you for making this an inevitable part of my life for the next week. Well, you're welcome. Um, but Ed, as much as I know you'd like to, we can't talk about your document documentary the entire episode. I know you kind of keep bringing it up and keep pushing for us to talk about it. You know, like I know I, I, you guys have heard it. I mean, just Ed sort of like, well, what in really my documentary. What really annoys me is that it took this 
And it took this juvenile fixation you have with proper cadence to to actually get us to discuss for a whole seven and a half minutes the Vatican financial scandal. And that even then only what, tangentially to say, oh, there's this thing about it, but we don't want to talk about listen, that. I, listen, li- we can't, I, I want to, I want to give you time to talk about your documentary the entire time, but this episode can't be a documentary episode about your documentary. Yeah, but this is news. We in the last you, week, we, we found out the Vatican's news. taking a hundred million euro bath on the building. We know, we know. I, I don't know why I don't have a, you know what? I think the title of this episode at the very least will be Condon Makes Documentary. And I don't know <laughs> how many other stories we should have about it, but I want to talk about it more. And, and I know that you want to talk about it more, but just maybe. I don't think we can talk about it more right now, if that's okay. Nobody knows what I suffer. Um, because there is a lot of news that we need to talk about to um, today. And we need to start by talking about a, very, a difficult story um, that I covered uh, for us at The Pillar um, this week. In Cleveland, a priest was sentenced to life in prison. And by the way, we're going to like talk about this. So if you listen to this show with your kids... Ed, how long did you tell me you think we should talk about this for? I, I I thought we agreed we wanted to try and give it a third of the show, so 20 minutes more or less. Okay. I, okay. I only, I want to talk about it for 15 minutes. So, um, yeah, if you listen to this with your kids, maybe skip ahead about 20 minutes and see if we're still talking about it, and then, you know, kind of fadoodle with it to see when we stop talking about it. Um, but uh, we're going to talk about this in a very direct way, and so you might not want to listen with your kids right now. Um we reported this week that a priest in Cleveland, a priest of the Diocese of Cleveland, was sentenced to live in prison for a number of federal counts, um, several counts of child trafficking, several counts of possession of child pornography and uh, distribution of child pornography, and then um, several counts of exploitation of a child. And uh, as I said, was sentenced to life in federal prison for those things. He's not yet laicized. His name is Father Robert McWilliams, and he's not yet laicized, although... I suspect he will be laicized penally with alacrity. Now, interestingly, um, just as a little canonical side, interestingly, during his sentencing hearing, he told um, the judge, who was the federal judge who was sentencing him, that he um, had written to the Holy Father to request uh, a dispensation from the clerical state. In other words, that he was seeking voluntary laicization. Um, and, uh, you know, it may be that he is indeed voluntarily laicized. This is kind of an interesting anomaly of the canonical system, is that the strongest penalty that a, a, a priest can have for committing these kinds of sins, uh, you know, obviously for committing a, a series of sins um, related to the exploitation uh, and trafficking of children, um, which are also canonical crimes, is to be laicized penally, to be dismissed from the clerical state as a punishment. But interestingly, a priest can also request to be to, to be laicized, and sometimes rather than go through the penal process, he is indeed laicized by request, which I think... Um, it's just kind of an interesting anomaly of our system that I think for some people who um, are victims of abuse or some kind of misconduct by a priest probably is somewhat dissatisfying, not that the result is not the same, but that um, the thing is as a result of a voluntary request rather than a punishment. But uh, maybe I'm reading into that. What do you no, think? No, I don't think you're reading into that at all. And this is not, I mean, it is an anomaly peculiar to the canonical system, but it's by no means an anomaly peculiar to these sorts of circumstances. Right. It's exactly what we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with regard to Vosesti's investigations into bishops who are then... Yeah, it's, it's very similar. That's and, right. And said, well, you can resign or we could penally deprive you of office, but we don't want to have to jump through those hoops or go through that sort of unpleasantness. So wouldn't it just be better if you step down voluntarily? Mm-hmm. I think that it is entirely reasonable that um, abuse victims and families of abuse victims would find this uh, a, a countersign to the proper 
administration of justice in the church's internal system. We used to have the right of degradation for a cleric. It was a canonical thing. If a cleric was penally laicized, he would present himself fully vested and he would have the chasuble removed. He'd have the dalmatic removed. He'd have the, you know, mm-hmm. he his yeah. hands would be scraped with a knife to show that, you know, they were trying to, un, you know, wipe off the remnants of the chrism from, right. uh, you know, his, his ordination. That, you know, we used to do this properly. We used to understand that this is not an administrative, you know, oh, well, he's no longer going to function as a priest. There mm-hmm. was a formal liturgical right for this. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there was the reason the church would do it. And after, by the way, after the final part of the right of degradation of a cleric was that he would be handed over to the civil judge who would be in attendance for trial and punishment for his crimes. Um, and the last thing the bishop would say, having scraped his hands and, you know, cast him into outer darkness and everything, is he would then turn to the judge and say, here he is, and we beg you, for the love of God, do not execute or mutilate him. And yeah. I just, like, you know, I'm good with that. We should bring that back. Why don't we have that? Yeah, I agree. I totally and completely agree. The notion of, like, well, I've written a letter, and then I'm going to get a letter back that says, um, you're not, a, you know, you're not a cleric anymore, and you can't do sacraments and except someone's in danger of death, and that's it. And you can that go get married not, now if you want. And... Well, I, you know, I don't know that he'll necessarily be dispensed from celibacy, the obligation of celibacy. There are clerics who even request lay cessation and are not dispensed from the uh, obligation of celibacy. Plus, he's going to be spending his life in federal prison, so getting married is a little bit tricky. Um, but um, you're right. The, the notion that you get a letter that just says, "Okay, you're not a cleric anymore," and um, you know, d- probably doesn't even end with, "And may God have mercy on your soul." is not um if if um if the purpose of punishment is um, among other things to sort of restore justice right so if, if the purpose of punishment is to reform the offender and to restore justice neither of those things you know it seems to me are achieved by our current mode of doing this which is to let someone resign or you know uh, to, to to either let someone resign or to let someone you know uh, even seek cessation apart from um, the thing being imposed as a pun- as a punishment with um, the trappings of um, of punishment that go along uh, as expressions of justice. I entirely agree. The purpose of um, penalties in the church is twofold, and it's always been twofold. Um, you are to have, you know, medicinal penalties, sure, which are supposed to affect the reform of the offender and hopefully coerce them into a right way of life. But you also have expiatory penalties what we used mm-hmm. to call vindictive penalties mm-hmm. um, and, you know, can be perpetual or whatever else. And the purpose of expiatory penalties is to exact justice, is mm-hmm. to satisfy justice, is mm-hmm. to make restitution to the victims and to the community, which has been injured by this. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is, you know, we sexual abuse of a minor is the worst kind of crime because mm-hmm. it is committed against a particular class of innocent person because it is a particular level of depravity in terms of how it is done. And there are mitigating, fa- not mitigating, um, amplifying factors in this case, Aggregate, aggravating factors in this case, which we will go into in a minute, I'm sure. Um, but the other thing is when it's done by a cleric, as opposed to like a teacher or someone else who's in a position of trust and authority over a minor, but when it's done by a cleric, yeah. it is a crime against the faith. It is a right. crime against Christ. 
Yeah. And I mean, that's why, you know, these right. cases are handled in Rome at the Vatican. They're handled at the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. They're not right. handled by the Congregation for Bishops. They're not handled by the Roman Rota or the Apostolic Signature or any of the other sort of normally constituted courts in Rome. They're handled by the Congregation for the Doctrine of Faith because these, the sexual abuse of a minor by a cleric is defined by the church's law as a crime against the faith and against the person right. of Christ. Right. And that's right. How, how on earth a letter that says, petition granted, have a nice one. How right. that is a satisfaction of a violent crime against Christ in the right. per, in the person of a minor. I have no idea. Yeah, yeah, I absolutely agree with you. I absolutely agree with you. And so it's interesting because the diocese of Cleveland, which has really not said very much about this case, the um, you know they've released I, I want to say four or five statements over the past um, two years since the priest was arrested in in December of 2019 um, but but which has not had said very much about this case you know sort of said this week well they're pursuing um, with alacrity his laicization but e even that didn't say they're pursuing it in a penal manner you know or he you know the, the, he, he will be can, you know canonically sanctioned for his grave serious and egregious um, crimes and that is I do think that is an, an, an injustice and an unfortunate one and uh, one which could be remedied you know obviously simply by the language with which we talk about things and the willingness of the church to accept um, a, a request for lay cessation from someone who is in the middle of a penal process you know there's an argument that that could be handled any number of ways someone in a penal process uh, any, any petition they make for lay cessation could be effectively held in abeyance until you know subsequent the to the resolution is of the true. crime I've seen this happen in I can think of four cases off the top of my head where someone is in the middle of a penal process and what the diocese are doing throughout the whole thing and the congregation uh, in Rome are doing through the he's whole trying thing to, is trying inviting to them him. over and over right. again to that's petition. That's exactly right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you petition for laicization, we won't have to. Because a penal process, you know, a, a penal process is a, involves some time, involves some personnel. The, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith does not have a, a, an extraordinary amount of time and personnel at its hands. It does not have an extraordinary amount of money at its hands. The dioceses do not, and I think I think there's often a perception, well, the end result will be the same. And I'm, I'm not even saying, I think this is, even in a certain way, un, it is understandable that this has been the, the approach without sort of an awareness of, of how this might be perceived. But the, the perception is, well, if we can achieve the same result by convincing the guy to get laicized or inviting him to get laicized, well, we'll achieve the same result. But what's missed in that is that the manner of the imposition of a, of a dismissal from the clerical state is relevant um, to whether or not justice has been accomplished and, and often seems that way to those who um, have suffered either primary, you know, as either primary uh, victims or, you know, secondary or even tertiary victims, those who have been, um, for whom justice has been wounded in some way by a crime. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously with all of that said, it, it, it does need to be said at the same time that, um, you know, this priest who committed grave crimes, um, among the gravest of crimes, as you say, um, uh, that um, it is not unique um, to the clerical class. It is not unique to priests or to the church that these things happen. But as we have said many, many times before, it is particularly, um, you know, and, and in fact, by, by the numbers, um, a cleric is less likely to commit these kind of egregious crimes than other, other people who might be in a child's life. Not, not all people, but other categories of people who are in a child's life. And I, I do think it is always there's always some value in retaining that perspective. But at the same time, what we've talked about before on the show many times is that it is particularly egregious, particularly galling, and particularly wounding when these kinds of crimes happen in the context of the church because of the spiritual relationship that we have um, to priests, the way in which a priest exercises spiritual fatherhood, the way in which um, 
a, a priest who who acts in persona Christi and is an altar Christus acts in a particularly blaspheming way and destro- destroys not only um, the, a, a person's psychology but also their spiritual identity or has the, the potential to, to destroy and so so gravely damage a person's spiritual identity um, to to take the most sacred things as the um, as the context um, for abuse is to defile them and also to defile the person who is created in the image of God and therefore the most sacred thing. And so, you know, that these things happen in the church is all the more egregious. And I think the reason it's important to say that over and over and over again is because there is a way when these things happen um, for um, institutions to respond with the good things that they are doing and the ways in which they've made cultural changes since 2002 and the various programs and things that exist. And those things, you know, are true. But what those do is they make effectively, I think they they, they turn um, human experience into um, statistical improbability. You know, it's unlikely that this w- would happen or it's unlikely that this would happen very often because we've affected these changes and these changes. And and that too, I think, has a danger, not only of diminishing a person's experience, but also diminishing the wound to the body of Christ that is occasioned by um, all sin and especially grave sin. So we have rights. If a, if a church is defiled, we have rights and rituals um, to renounce that, to renounce the evil that has come from the, um, a, a church being uh, blasphemed effectively. and um, Well, and again, we used to have a right for how to do that when a cleric did it. Right, exactly. But um, I don't, but one of the things that the, that a, a family of victims in this, uh, in this story, um, you know, pointed out to me, and I think rightly so, is the, the church um, dioceses don't seem uniformly, or maybe very many at all, know what to do when um, people experience these kinds of things in the context of the church. And so I published this long story this week about the experience of one family in, in, who, in which several um, boys, several sons in the family were, um, were abused in, in, in a couple of ways. And of course, I, I, I talked with one of the victims and with his mom and with his dad and with some of their friends. And, um, and, and one of the things that was painful for them, among many, many others, was a feeling of uncertainty in the context of the church about what how to relate to them, how to engage with them pastorally, or a feeling of apprehension or holding back about engaging with them pastorally. For for some of them, that was extremely painful, the sense that um, they had suffered this extraordinary injury, this extraordinary injustice, this extraordinary pain. And um, they're people of faith, so of course Christ is the, uh, is the great physician, and yet a feeling of being held at arm's length from the church, probably, you know, potentially because the diocese is afraid of a lawsuit, or you're just sort of not sure about the criminal proceeding, or these are those things. But the sense that those things might be, uh, for some for some people in the family, the, the sense that those things might be sort of abandoned, forsaken, you know, for a lost sheep, as it were, did not uh, did not come across. And so I think that's an important lesson kind of to take away from this, this egregious situation. Yeah, I, I mean, that that is in an especially heartbreaking part of that that report um the way in which the church people in parishes the priests don't know how to react around victims and i mean in a sense this is i mean this is biblical this is you know if you read isaiah if you read the songs of the suffering servant the image of the suffering servant the image of christ on the cross um is so wounded so disfigured so abused that the natural response is to turn your face away that this is you know this is what it says in the scriptures this is you know this is the prayer of the church on you know in front of the cross and to see that the this family these victims i mean they are they are christ 
that this is the suffering of the innocents and that the the natural response is to turn away from suffering that is so horrible so unjust in that way and to see that the church needs to have and when i say the church i don't just mean the chancery the the parish priest the whatever whoever but all of us to say that the you know this family suffering is is christ suffering among us and that's you know there's a special duty of care um and respect out there um one which seems to be lacking um yeah. i certainly have noticed it lacking um in responses to the piece which i was I can't say I'm completely surprised by. Um, well, how do you mean? I, I, my, my general assumption is when something this serious and this profound um, is discussed or written about, uh, it will inevitably draw out self-serving narcissistic lunatics um, who behave in an appalling way. That, that's and did just, you experience or encounter that? Um, yeah. Th- this, is, this has been a trend I've noticed that I have seen people on social media variously uh, seeking to blame the blame the victims, blame the children, blame the parents, which I thought was a, an incredible, cowardly gut punch of a take to have on um, the courageous witness of this family. I've seen people try and suggest that it is weird or effeminate was uh, was one word I thought uh, to allow to, to, victims to, to have this space to actually talk about their experience in the hope that the church could learn from it. And we as uh, Catholics and brothers and sisters in Christ of this family can share their pain and also learn from it and hope to, you know, help prevent this from happening again. Um, you know, the, the, well, one of the things that it, that that raises for me, cause yeah, there have been a lot of social media reactions to this long story that we have about this. And, and the reason we have this story is because indeed there was uh, a family who wanted to share their story. You know, the, 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 um, the victims of this father McWilliams are, are obviously not identified and uh, in, in public documents and these kinds of things. But, but there was a, a family that reached out to us effectively because they wanted to share their story. And, um, and, and we were able to speak with a fair number of people in their community as a consequence of that. But the, um, when, when someone approaches you in, in a way and they say they, they want to tell you about what happened and they want to share their story, you know, the response that we have to give is, of course, like that we, you know, if it's something that we're, we're able to cover or we think it's the right thing to cover or whatever, that, that part of our work is not, is to cover a thing as we see it and as the facts take us and those kinds of things. And so, you know, like journalists are not stenographers for anybody in the sense that it's not their job to kind of just write down what someone says and that's it and not to fact check it and compare it to other narratives and try and put narratives together and those kinds of things. You know, and so we, we, we always try and make that clear. But at the same time, you know, um, part of, I think, the the important work of the church in, in, in continuing to respond to um, what we have been aware of, which is this, you know, the, the, that that um, the scourge of sexual abuse is not entirely uh, um, uh, eradicated from the life of the church. Is the understanding of the importance of um, uh, of giving uh, um, victims the the space to to tell their stories and the ability to tell their stories, um, and in the way that they want to and in a way, the way that they're ready. And in this case, in this family, there were pe- some people who wanted to talk about things a lot, and some people who didn't. There was a uniformity of wanting the, uh, the story to be told or openness to the story being told, but you know, people wanted to talk about it in different ways. And so, you know, that, that leads to, so in this case, for example, sort of the predominant voice in the story um, was the mother of, of several boys who were um, uh, victimized by this priest. And, and so in a lot of ways, the mother was the sort of narrative lens through which we entered the story. 
And, um, and, and that doesn't mean that we didn't interview other people and, and uh, in the family and talk with other people in the family. It's just that the mother was one of the, the people that I, I, I spoke with the most for a couple of reasons. And, um, and so she was the narrative lens into the story. Um, you know, and so it, it is even her telling the story and then you talk with other people in the family and you hear their versions of it and their understandings of it. And you try to synthesize those things and, and bring them together. But one of the things that I think comes after the publication of a story like this is, is discussion, right? I mean, um, the, the, the story that this family had to share was um, appallingly, appalling and appallingly difficult and, and, and tragic. And I mean, everything, so many of these and things established. that this are established. This is the other thing. These are not right, seri- established, right? This is not, a, this is not a narrative of accusation. This is, this is the, the victims no, of we crime go and we get all the, speaking about the victims of crime speaking about their thing. And we go and we get all the court documents and we line them up with the court documents and we see how they align with, 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 you know, court document after court document after court document and, and everything else and, and, and speak with everybody else who can. But, but of course, you know, when a story like that publishes, people want to talk about it and people want to discuss it. And, no, you know, some but, people want to talk about it and discuss it, JD. Well, a lot of people just want to talk about themselves. But okay. But what, what I wanted to say is, uh, um, I think it's natural for there to be discussion, which follows it. And I also think it's true that if you are willing to tell your story in a public way to journalists, then you subject your story to some degree of scrutiny, certainly to the scrutiny of the journalist who's going to have to fact check it and verify it and compare it to other stories, but, you know, to, to a certain degree of public scrutiny as well. But, you know, at the same time that that's true, um, the the nature of the discussion, I think, especially for Christians, if Catholic journalism has to be done in a certain way, so does sort of Catholic consumption of journalism have to be done in a certain way. And the nature of discussion for Christians, I think, has to be rooted in respect in respect for the dignity of the person, respect for, you know, um, not allowing it to become what I saw in some places, which was like a lot of sort of second guessing of various characters in the story, a lot of sort of imposing one's own narrative um, into the story or one's own one's own sort of experience as a definitive reading of the story. Now, it's not to say that one can't say, well, my own experience sort of informs the way I read this and therefore, or I have a parallel experience and therefore I have this this insight. That, I think, is important and a good and healthy part of discussion. But there can become a way in which that is done um, that in a certain way ignores the voices who are which are being told. And this is what I observed that really bothered me and instead says, well, I read it and this is what I know. You know, the, the, certainly, as you said, some kind of blame, the parents should have X, Y, and Z or... Um, you know, the parents clearly didn't this or that, or the parents clearly think this or that, um, or uh, those kinds of things. And that is just, it seems to me, um, to go beyond discussion into um, a kind of projection that is not th- that is not just. Now to say, um, you know, as I look at it, these are the things I wonder about, or uh, as I look at it, these are the things that occur to me, or this or that. But to sort of say, th- definitively, they should have X, Y, or Z, uh, I don't know. It just seems to me to be Lacking in all humanity and Christian charity. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So that is something that I've observed, but it's interesting because, you know, what are, what is the right way to discuss something like this and how is it done with charity and with respect? And and I, I I would hope that that would be obvious to most people, but at the same time, it becomes clear that there do need to be sort of models of conversation about things like this that can examine, okay, well, what can be learned from what this family experienced, which is a big part of the point of telling the story without what can be learned to turn into um, these guys must think X, Y, or Z, or these guys must be this way or that that way, you know? Yeah, but I mean, to be honest with you, I find of a piece, I find this of a piece with what we were talking about um, with regard to these sorts of crimes in the first place, which is, it's not that they don't happen elsewhere, it's that they have a special gravity when they're done within the context mm-hmm. of the church. And in the same mm-hmm. way that, you know, the, the account of victims of crimes in high-profile trials attract this kind of scrutiny and this kind of unhinged... Um, 
vitriol and critique, discussion, and all these other things. That happens in the secular sphere too, probably more. But when you see this kind of just vile um, personal attacks on people who are talking about suffering and betrayal that would break most people and doing so in a way and with a stated intention of doing it only for the help and benefit of the church. Um, I think the kind of people who react like that, there's a special culpability and a special gravity to that as well, because they're doing so within the context of the Christian community. They're doing so within the context of the church and they are exhibiting a particular kind of um, warped mentality and reaction for which I think um, it should come in for a particular kind of condemnation and criticism. Because again, this is in, in this of all contexts, they should be modeling Christian charity in in whatever point of view they want to take or whatever point of the right. story I mean, they want to, to discuss. Which is not to say one shouldn't have a point of view, absolutely. right? I mean, I think that's absolutely no. not right. It's just that how do we engage in points of view from the disposition of charity? And that actually... No, but it's like we, tweeting out against, you know, the, the mother who's giving this account of how she's lived all of this and seen her children suffer and everything. Thing. And some, you know, jumped up <laughs> tweeting out, oh, well, she only used the word tragedy once. Do better, please. It's like, go to hell, man. Who do you think you are? I think your point is quite right. Um, that, you know, oh, this is this person didn't say it this way or this person didn't say it that way. It's not charitable. So how do we, but the, there is, you know, social media conditions us, and this is where I think we really need to go. Social media conditions us to allow conversation to become um, adversarial, right? The, the predominant mode of conversation in many forms of social media is ad adversarial. And so to allow conversation to become adversarial and then to allow conversation to become sort of self-broadcasting so that the way that I engage is to um, broadcast myself without um, engaging in something which is which is more um, discursive or dialectical with, with, with another or, or even with something. I wondered about this. Rather, I, I have included this or I am this, you know. I would actually reverse the two, that um, the, the way in which that happens is social media dialogue is primarily performative and self-referential. Yes, and because thank you. This is what I was trying to the say. The cheapest and quickest way to be effectively performative and self-referential is to be adversarial. That it doesn't that's become right. performative self-referential right. because it's adversarial. It becomes adversarial because that's that's the easiest way to, you know, get people to pay attention to you when you are, you know, effectively shouting at the pigeons in the park, which mm -hmm. is, you know, what it is to just sort of take to Twitter to vent your spleen. Yeah, that's not to say that there shouldn't be real conversation around this broad story. I think there should. I mean, I hope that people would be sitting no, with it and, and talking with it and, and things like that. But rarely does that come from... Yeah, the kind of sort of polemical, uh, self-rooted narrative that you see on social media in response to things like this, which no, is well, and uh, but, but I mean to be clear, just it, declare a judgment. It, it, again, it's a minority in the same way that these crimes are committed by an, by a minority of people. The, the these sorts of appallingly inhuman reactions are also carried out by by and large, at least from what I've seen, a minority of people. That most people were responding to this story with. Sympathy with Christian charity, with love, with prayer, with you know, the things. Well, that you and would what hope I'm not saying is that the people. W w I don't want it to sound like what we're saying is because we wrote something, or in this case, because I wrote something, people shouldn't criticize it. That's not, I don't think, what we're saying at all. No. I think it's fine for people to criticize it. I think if people have criticisms with the way that it's written, it would be fine. But the criticisms that I saw that really aggrieved me were not, oh, I don't like the way that 
you know, JD wrote this, the criticisms that I saw that were grieved me were effectively, um, I have made a judgment, I, I have um, like inserted a, a, a narrative into the piece of the story that I have in order to make a definitive and conclusive judgment that th- these people were wrong in various ways. And that just seems to me contrary to, um, uh, you know, either both rationality and, and Christian charity. So, uh, most of the people who are listening to this show, I don't think have been engaged in that kind of dialogue, and I don't want it to seem that way um, at all. Um, and, and in fact, um, one, of the thi- one of the other kinds of responses that I have gotten to this, which is really kind of very tragic, but I, th- I understand it, and I'd love to talk about it with you, Ed, is people who, priests have, who have written to me, a couple priests have now written to me who have said, man, I read this story about this guy who was manipulative and manipulated, wormed his way into a family, manipulated and coerced his way into a family and abused abused the position of trust that was extended to him in that family and other families too. And, um, you know, I don't want my parishioners ever to feel uncomfortable as a consequence of my presence or ever to have to feel suspicious. And I feel like I need to isolate myself more from my parishioners as a consequence of, you know, these kinds of abuses which happen. And, you know, I wrote back to one priest and I said, Father, that would be allowing um, Father McWilliam's sin, but, you know, Father Bobby's sin to triumph over your priestly ministry. Um, You know, the the idea that, well, these bad things happen and so I as a priest should um, withdraw myself from Christian community is actually perhaps the most, you know, perhaps the perhaps the furthest reaching effect of this in terms of could affect so many other communities in, in, in a way that is not healthy. What is healthy, I think, is to ask questions as priests, okay, well, what boundaries did this person seem not to exhibit? Um, what boundaries do I have in my personal life? Why do I, in my pastoral life, why do I have them? Are they, are they the right ones? Are they healthy? What is my interior life like? Um, do I have both... Um, uh, the, the kind of spiritual life and the kind of um, work on my, you know, psychological and emotional health to be a balanced person and to be able to set boundaries and, and, and hold to them? And do I recognize sort of needs that I have or lonelinesses that I have or insecurities that I have and like try to acknowledge and address them in a, in a Christian way? Um, those things are all, I think, reasonable takeaways for priests from, from a story like this. Um, I should just put up an absolute and definitive wall between myself and my pastoral ministry because I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. And we heard a priest, we were texting with a priest the other day who said something similar, like, man, I don't want to make people uncomfortable by me being around when things like this happen. So I tend to sort of fade into the background. I don't think that's, I mean, speaking for myself, at least as a lay Catholic, that's not certainly what my response is to want from no. a priest after well, something like And also I would argue that it's... It's not a practical response. It's also not a good response, like you said, that this is to allow the the minority sin of this minority group of people, in this case, Father McWilliams, uh, allow them to you know uh, to amplify the effects of their sin mm-hmm. um, right. by disordering the community and the community of the church, you know, like ripples in a pond. Um, but the other thing is, I you know, when when you th- when I think when and again, you know, I've heard the same thing from a couple of priests saying, you know, this is the natural reaction is just to sort of draw back and say, I don't, uh, I, I don't want to make people feel uncomfortable. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to make anyone feel anything that raises, you know, this sort of pain and anything like that. And okay, that's understandable. But the thing is to accept the dynamic of just sort of the priest is on one side of things and his flock are on the other, the parishioners are on the other, the families in his parish are on the other is is a category or it is a kind of clericalism, I would say. It's not, not a malicious one, but I'm saying it's the, right. it's an articulation of that mentality be, that says, well, the priest is over here and the faithful are over there. Mm-hmm. And they're not. They're one family. Right. 
It's a re- yeah, right. It's exactly. a relate. It's a familial relationship. It should be an unbreakable familial relationship that way. And you know what? These sorts of terrible things happen in families. In fact, as a percentage, they happen way more in way families. Way more frequently in families. The most, right, exactly. you know, the most um, likely person to unfortunately, appallingly abuse a child is most likely a member of its own family. Right. And we don't, you know, we don't say, well, fathers and uncles and you know whoever should play less of a part in their own right, families because disappear, right. horrible things happen in other families. Right. On the contrary, you should hold your family closer. You should right. deepen the familial bonds. You should make sure that this is something that, you know, you can... Uh, you should rebuke the presence of sin in the family, rebuke the, yes. rebuke the influence of Satan in the family, but that's not the same as to withdraw or, yeah. you know... Yeah. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Well, um, I'm going to have some follow-up reporting on this, actually. One of the more interesting parts of the, the story, which I didn't get, which which didn't, which was not in the first story, um, because the first story was like 9,000 words long, guys, and, you know, I don't think I could have kept your attention, you know, I don't think I could have kept you reading much longer than that, even though the, the, the family story was extraordinary and very powerful. Um, uh, I'm going to have some follow-up reporting probably after the USCCB meeting next week about one of the more interesting conversations I had with the parents in this family, which was effectively, I, I said to them, look... Um, you know, they're part of a Catholic community. They talked about being part of a Catholic homeschooling community and a parish community and um, uh, families and couples who pray together and spend time together. And in a certain way, the, the community that I experienced sort of around them did not seem unlike my own experience of Catholic community. Um, so I asked them, I said, you know, what should I tell when I tell, when I talk about this, what should I tell the moms and dads in my own Christian community about like people? Uh, I, I don't, you know, people will read this and think, oh gosh, what about Father Tonto, who's connected to our community? Is this, um, is he manipulating our community and, and coercing us and dividing us in the same way? What should I tell people to um, to be aware of and to look for that allows them to feel like they have some knowledge and they don't have to sort of have only fear? And and they had a really interesting conversation with me about things that they learn, they've learned and red flags and, and experiences that they had and and what, what looking back they can see now that they didn't see then. And, and so after the bishop's meeting, probably, because I want I need to give it some time to, to work through it, but after the bishop's meeting, I, I look forward to publishing parts of that conversation. I think it'll be, um, I hope, a, a, an interesting and, and, and fruitful follow-up. Okay, well, um, speaking, speaking of the bishop's meeting, we will talk about it, but not quite yet, because we just want to talk for a couple of minutes, uh, like... I don't know, five minutes or so about uh, a really cool series that we are doing this week that I am just really excited about. It's awesome. Um, so we uh, here at The Pillar and our mostly our contributing editor, Brendan Hodge, who uh, is like a data guy. He knows a lot about data analysis and statistical analysis and these kind of things. Um, we uh, worked with um, a, a research firm, a polling research firm, to um, kind of put a poll into the field, as it were, to a nationally representative sample of Americans. So what that means is effectively a poll of a of a, a, a poll of a, of a of a field that effectively kind of looks like America by region, by uh, by age, by race, by demography, by income. Just a, a representative sample of kind of the American um, tableau, as it were. And, uh, and then in kind of an oversampling, as it were, of uh, Catholics and people who identify as ex-Catholics, who were raised Catholic and no longer are Catholic. And, and we put this poll into the field in which we asked them about their religious attitudes and dispositions, about their religious practices and habits, about their habits and identities growing up and their habits and identities now. And we did this because we just, um, you, you know, you hear a lot about kind of how America's landscape, religious landscape is changing, the so-called rise of the nuns, people who have no religious affiliation. And there's a lot of conversation about that. 
But one of the things that we wondered about is just how has the pandemic impacted that? How have the how has the extraordinary weirdness of the last year and a half impacted people's religious identity? And then what kind of is the state of affairs of, uh, um, of, sort of American Catholic identity and beliefs? And so we're running a series of reports this week um, on on this this uh, this survey we did, which we're calling the the Pillar Survey on Religious Attitudes and Practices, which um, which is a very descriptive and worthy title. I wanted to just call it the Pillar Poll, but well, this the Pillar Survey on Religious Attitudes and Practices. The reason I like it is because. We can, as we do it year after year, we can take to calling it the rap survey. Oh. And I think that's kind of fun. So that's oh, why. Oh, you didn't tell yeah. me that. Now I will no, use that. No, I, I, I like was waiting to see, actually. I've been waiting to see now for, we've been working on this for a couple of weeks now. You know, we've had the, we had the poll in the field for a month, I think. And we've been working on this now for several months in one form or another. And I've been w- just waiting to see, Ed, when you were going to uh, talk with me about the rap survey. Totally passed me by, but I'm glad you brought it to my attention. Well, so what have you taken away? From the... From the survey? Yeah, I mean, what just you wanted to talk about it? What are well? No, it's not so much that I the the things I want to take away. I mean, it's the the thing with a poll this size. I mean, there's a reason why we're publishing it in five parts every day of the week is because Mm -hmm. there's just so much there. And to be honest, each report is itself sort of, if you like, um, just things that we've yanked out of the data and cabin off and said, well, here's an interesting thing. Like the the well is deeper. There's more stuff you could pull out of the data we got from all of this. And it's, you know, this this kind of data analysis is why we need someone as smart as Brendan doing it, um, is because, yeah. you know, you can turn it five different ways and see five different sides of it and, and find out all kinds of interesting things. And, you know, there's stuff in there that's I found very illuminating about, you know, the kinds of um, childhood and household practice, uh, which at least correlate strongly to remaining Religious in the practice practices of the faith, adult, yeah. going, but also reasons why people leave the faith. Um, I, I There was one graph that, you know, I, I don't know that there's a, a general wider point to be made here, but I just found fascinating that came out of this that I think it was in the, I think it was in the second story that we ran, the, the why Catholics leave, why Catholics stay, that, you know, the number of registered Catholics in the country is going up. But the number of Catholic baptisms is going down, right? And exactly. It's like yeah. what, and which just goes to show you that we are increasingly an immigrant church. Well, and and also just, um, I think an immigrant church, but I also think age has something to do with that. That um, people are they're both immigrant influence and then people living longer. Hmm. Um, but also the number, you know, so that explains the number of of um, registered Catholics going up. The number of Catholic baptisms going down does not pretend. Um, for longevity to that No, but I mean, to see that the the two lines going opposite directions is quite striking. I mean... Oh, quite so, yeah, absolutely. uh, But I mean, but this is the kind of wonderful thing about this this reporting that I've just really enjoyed is there's just so much there that is counterintuitive that you wouldn't expect. You know, the, one of the things from the one we published today, today being Thursday when we're recording this podcast, is, you know, that jumped out at me is, you know, the, the percentage of Catholics who are weekly mass attendees that go to confession once a month or more is 50%. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't expecting that. I, mm-hmm. like most people, sort of bought the wider cultural narrative that confessional practice is dead, that it's right. a minority concern. Now, this is people... the number of people who say that they go to mass or go to confession. Right. But there's... Right? So I'm fa- I'm, I find myself curious if there's a correlation between saying you go to confession once a month and going to confession once a month, or if people think they go to confession more often than they do, or if people think that they ought to say they go to confession more often. I'm just curious. I find myself curious if that, if what people say about their confessional habits is consistent with their confessional habits. Right. But now to study that, you actually need... For an anonymous national 
right. poll. It's unusual. I mean, the, the reason you do them at this scale and in this way, mm-hmm. and this is, you know, I mean, you do get anomalies in that the people, you know, have sort of self-reporting bias of what they think they should say and stuff. But generally speaking, that's why you have a margin of error and things like that. Um, but even allowing for that, I was I was surprised. I wouldn't. Mm-hmm. That, that's not a, that's not the number I would I would have picked for that. Um, and I think those kinds of figures that are unexpected and a little bit arresting. And I know they are arresting because a bunch of people said <laughs> we posted. Dang, the, that's arresting. Well, not they didn't say dang, it's arresting. A couple of people said, well, this just shows it. You know, the entire survey is clearly fake. <laughs> just that right. was good. Oh, a surprise that didn't con- a, a, a result that didn't conform to my priors. What well, I love about this episode this of the fake. show Ed, is that what I love about this episode of the show Ed, is I don't know if you have been spending more time on Twitter this week than usual, or if the baby's keeping you up. But my favorite part of this show is. Uh, Ed rants at our at our at our Twitter haters. You know what um, it is. I'll tell you what it is. Which you almost never notice whatsoever. I, I try hard not to notice them, no, and I mostly don't. You know what it is. But uh, this week they are under your skin. No, it's. It, I, I tell you for why. It's because we've had these big reports that are important, and the problem with publishing things that I think are of real seriousness and importance, like the survey series, like the story out of Cleveland, is they get a lot more eyes. They get a lot more conversation. And while I have what is, for day-to-day purposes, an impregnable wall erected around my Twitter feeds so that I can't see the kind of, you know, unhinged uh-huh. lunatic extremes that, you know, make up, as far as I'm aware, the vast majority of people online discussing <laughs> things, um, normally they're all completely excluded and I, I they don't bother me. But because, you know, th- these stories have a, have a reverberation well beyond the sort of good wall of blocks and mutes that i have erected around my timeline so stuff's leaking through that's what it is i uh you got you got to get thick skin about this stuff although i'm saying that to you right now and uh i don't think i always have thick skin about this stuff but it, but it usually i you usually seem imperturbable about that stuff and you seem a little bit you just seem a little bit aggrieved by the existence of trolls on social media mm. It's not that I'm aggrieved by the existence of trolls on social media, JD. I'm aggrieved by the existence of professional charlatans masquerading as Catholics on social media. <laughs> and you if you're some person with, you know, if you're some person who's just so and so from, you know, Bedidley Boeing, Idaho, and you've got an opinion that I think is trash, that's fine. You're just entitled to note whatever. to listeners from Bedidley Boeing, Idaho, we value you and your subscription to Pillar Catholic. I just said you're Proceed. entitled to your opinion, and good luck no, to you. Actually, I think you said if you're some so and so from Bedidley Boeing, Iowa, I don't care what you think. I meant I don't have an opinion about you having an opinion. I'm not upset <laughs> by it. <laughs> but if you are. Proceed. But if you are someone who is a professional click farmer who does it by generating <laughs> outrage and putting forth mendacious and tendentious interpretations of actual news from actual journalists doing actual <laughs> reporting because your red hot fire blog needs a few more clicks. You know, I got no, those people agree with me. And if you're doing it all with the shtick of, well, I am a good loyal son of the church because I follow the proper true liturgy or I am fanatically loyal to our Holy Father. You know what? No, those people are <laughs> awful. They're all oh awful God, people. Jeez. You are mad today. How are you sleeping, man? Not well. <laughs> Why do you ask? <laughs> oh, boy. Jeepers creepers. Well, you are going to need to get some sleep, and I'll tell you for why. Um, we have... <laughs> I'm just going to transition, buddy. We have... What's the name of your uh, the show episode again? Condon, Condon gets a documentary. Um, I don't think we're really going to call it that. No, we're calling it that. But we have next week... Um, 
an important part of our work here at the Pillar. Before we say this, <laughs> yeah, we have next week the annual fall assembly of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops, and um, uh, it is the first uh, time that the bishops will be gathered in um, one place, uh, you know, uh, for a meeting since November of 2019. And ordinarily, right before the bishops' meeting, our our episode would be entirely devoted to sort of geeking out about the meeting and going through the agenda of the meeting with a fine-tooth comb and, go, you know, talking through each point. A couple of things uh, about the meeting next week um, that are really quite interesting. I, I have seen other journalists say, and I have not, no, I, have, I haven't, a source hasn't told me this, and I've actually asked the conference, and they told me that they the agenda wasn't set yet, but a couple of other journalists have said that the meeting will begin in a very novel way, which is with an executive session. An executive session is when the only people who are allowed to be there are the bishops, and, you know, you don't get to know what's going on. Um, that the meeting will begin with an executive session, which is very unusual, and I think we've talked about that before. And then, um, you know, the bishops are going to vote upon their Eucharistic um, document, a draft of which we published a, a couple of weeks ago, and the bishops are going to have some elections. They're going to elect a new general secretary after the resignation of um, Monsignor Jeff Burrell in July, and they're going to elect some committee chair persons. Well, they're they're men. They're going to elect some committee chairmen, um, since they're bishops who are running for the thing only. So they're going to elect some committee chairmen for various committees, and um, they're going to uh, talk about their upcoming Eucharistic revival, which is a project about which I am very excited and which I think is really quite cool, and we've talked about before. And there are a few other things on the agenda, some business things, some sort of budget approvals and discussions and things like that. But truth be told, Ed, while ordinarily by this time uh, of the year, right ahead of the meeting, I'm champing at the bit, as you know, I'm, you I'm something are of normally USCCB vibrating guy. with we anticipation at this point. I, I, this year, I'm just not feeling it. And I've been wondering why. And um, I think uh, I think part of it is, um, I, I, this is just things that I'm saying right now, but I, I've been wondering why am I not quite as excited about it? I mean, the bishops haven't been together since you know, two years ago, and they'll be together, and it'll be interesting. And part of it is, um, you know, to be honest, um, we took in uh, July uh, a lot of flack for some reporting that we did, which we stand by, but which we took, uh, for which we took a lot of flack, and from which we got um, positive reception from many bishops, but also negative reactions from some bishops. And um, uh, and I, I just honestly don't know, like, I don't know if we're going to be sort of persona non grata at the meeting or something like that. And I'm, I, I'm, I'm just telling the podcast audience this for some reason that I'm kind of finding myself surprised by now, but I, I am like a little bit apprehensive in a certain way about like how it's going to go. So I think that's part of it. And then part of it is, you know, so there's You're, really not... You did, and I think this is, that's not an unreasonable way to feel. I mean, you, I've, I've been to many USCCB meetings with you now over the course of years and the, the, it's, it's your preferred pool to paddle in. You, I, I, I've been going to USCCB meetings for a long time. I know a lot of people there, and I don't quite know what will be at this time. I, I, I haven't had quite the same reaction because I was never, I was never a persona grata particularly. <laughs> uh, so I haven't had quite the same. Um, I haven't had to adjust my expectations quite right, as much I as you. To but I can totally understand why you bit. are feeling right. that way. Yeah. Uh huh. Um, and uh, and so. Yeah, so that's a little bit, I think that's a little bit unsettling. But also there are certain things that are not on the agenda that, you know, I wish were on the agenda in some way. Um, this is the, f I, not the first meeting, but um, one of the things that um, is true in this case in Cleveland in which we talked about is the way in which um, this priest who was arrested for doing various bad things, and again, if you fast forward to this part with your kids, I'm going to talk about this case again, the way in which this priest doing very bad things utilized 
um, social media and location-based hookup apps um, and texting number masking apps to commit a, a lot of egregious, egregious crimes against minors. And, um, and we pointed uh, some of that out as a warning in previous coverage. Well, we have talked about that before, and we've, we've interviewed people actually at the conference. We interviewed people back in June about sort of technology accountability We talk, when we talked about this priest. But this priest, you know, used location-based hookup apps to... Um, the reason why he was charged with trafficking is... I, trafficking, I thought, like, trafficker. What's a trafficker? You know, it sounds like something that would be in an FX series or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I guess I didn't quite understand that trafficking can be as broad as to mean effectively trafficking in. So, procure, you know, procuring minors, um, paying, paying minors, uh, uh, money youths by which I mean minors money for, um, uh, the commission of indecent acts, the exploitation of minors by paying and using location-based hookup apps uh, to using location-based apps to find them to find them and then pay them to allow him to sexually abuse them, abuse them. Right. That is and exactly when we said this is a risk of these location-based hookup apps, we were called homophobes, right? We have been called homophobes for that, but I'm less sort of so that so 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 that is an example of sort of the use of this kind that kind of technology and then other kinds of technology like text number generating apps and just social media apps and and you know Snapchat and Instagram and stuff to um, commit serial acts of child abuse some of which are all of which are extraordinarily heinous some of which are quite complex um, a, another priest was arrested I want to say in Scranton Pennsylvania for the use of Location-based hookup apps to um, to meet um, minors in order to um, exchange money for sexual abuse to sexually abuse them. Um, there have been uh, I, I I I think a couple of other arrests in recent months, and then a priest in uh, Rhode Island, a priest a member of the priestly fraternity of St. Peter, was arrested, of course, for um, uh, trafficking in child pornography just a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that it just seems to me clearly is that. There is a new digital, and I, I, I wouldn't know the data enough to say what, what the percentage is. I suspect it's very, very low, but there is a sort of new digital front on the war for safe environments or the efforts of safe environments. And our safe environment policies, there's a new digital front in the efforts for safe environments. That's manifestly clear because, you know, the the, the, the reports about child protection and things like that I always like to say, well, most of these are not new cases that are being reported Um uh, a lot of the cases that are reported today are historical cases, and that's certainly true. But there is a there is a tide, at least it seems to me, a, a rising sort of thing. Maybe it's something that's so small it can be mostly nipped in the bud statistically and numerically, not to discount any one experience. But there is um, uh, there is in the news more and more often a new digital front of of a safe environment uh, efforts that are needed by the church, and there I don't think there is. A clear understanding of that. I think most many bishops don't know what to do, and I think more bishops are starting to know we need to do something about this. We need to know what to do about it. But how to address this sort of issue of technology accountability seems to be um, more immediate than might have been thought. And um, well, it should be, be more immediate. Addressed. Right? They no, have that's the, what I'm saying. Mean, the need is more immediate, but I, but it's not on the agenda. And I think I'm somewhat. It, it's unfortunate that it's not on the agenda. I think I it's very unfortunate it's not on the agenda. And I mean, this is a case of the church, I'm afraid, which the church can claim, especially the church in the United States, can claim in a number of ways at an institutional level to be ahead of the game on the protection mm -hmm. of minors yeah, relative to other institutions. Well ahead of the game in terms of the safe environment policies of other large public institutions, but for sure. When you talk about the wider conversation around child protection, child sexual abuse, child trafficking, all of these things, the conversation amongst law enforcement shifted to online over a decade ago. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh -huh. That's exactly and right. And we're only starting to talk about it now. And it's only because, again, the worst has happened. 
Yeah. And I think it would be, I, I don't want to sound hypercritical here because it's not my intention, but the, the church was, I think at an institutional level, better than not in responding to the scandals of the spotlight years and saying, we're going to take a hard institutional look and come up with a response that cuts across the board and puts in place policies and procedures and takes this seriously and makes it clear that when we say we are going to address this, we mean it. And if you look at the the statistics and caseloads and things in attorney general's reports and investigations across different states, it seems by and large to support the success of those policies that incidents and allegations of clerical sexual abuse fall off a cliff after the year, the first two or three years of 2000, after the Dallas mm-hmm. charter comes in. So yeah, for new cases, for new yeah. cases. And I think that is great. And um, I think a lot of those things have impacted, have manifested in long range cultural changes where, you know, most people know in the, in the context of the church, never to be alone with a kid. Right. The, the, it it is, it has created a culture of awareness around the need for safeguarding, um, ha- basically having our eyes open, doing things with a certain, with an eye on propriety even. Right. Yeah. Um, which some, you know, sometimes people sort of lament about, well, it's terrible that, you know, a priest can never give a ride to someone again and all this stuff. It's like, yeah, I understand, but still better than not here. Um, and it would be nice if we could see that sort of, um, that hard leap forward that had to be made after the spotlight years carry on under its own momentum and keeping up with the times in a way that didn't have to be prompted by things like the McWilliams case um, to say, no, we got to, you know, got to make the next um, evolution here in the discussion. It would be nice if it could continue under its own momentum, observing the changes of, I mean, and the Vatican has to a large extent taken up on this. I mean, we've had revisions in canon law well before the last couple of years under the Benedict papacy and stuff where they were redrafting penal law and clerical sexual abuse to take account of the online problem and, uh, and things of, you know, the distribution and trafficking and digital um, images and things like that. You know, it, it would just be nice if we could, if we could see this sort of evolution of priority and focus happen organically and not have to be constantly spurred by the worst case scenarios. Yeah, that's right. So I, as I say, would that that were on the agenda, and, and maybe that's what's on the agenda for the executive session at the beginning of the meeting, for all we know. Um, it would seem to me that there would probably be some discussion uh, during that executive session of the resignation of Monsignor Burrell, though I suspect there will also be discussion about the you know so-called Eucharistic coherence document. Although now that the Eucharistic coherence document draft is out, I think m- most people can see that it is a relatively... <laughs> Uncontroversial articulation hopefully. of uncontroversial, straightforward articulation of the church's Eucharistic uh, theology and, and well, doctrine. So, well, while we're driving by that subject, I would note that while well, so- we're on the subject, can't, sorry, I don't know what you that bye was. Bye bye birdie. Sorry, bye bye birdie. No, you've never seen bye bye birdie. No. What musicals do you watch? I don't. Musicals are awful. I hate them. Huh. This, this so came up when you tried to get me to watch Hamilton. Like, I, I don't do musicals. Sometimes I'm surprised to discover the depth of our friendship, given the, that our accidental differences run so deep. Yeah, I no, I, I, I mean, I've uh, some of them. Like, I, I will name. Uh, let me throw you a bone here. I will name one musical I like, unironically and on its own terms. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. That's a feel good. <laughs> that's a feel good show. I'll watch that once a year around Christmas. <laughs> like that. But like, lame is, nice. I hate that. I hate that. 
It's like, let's talk about serious issues and human misery in the depths of depravity, but also let's all link arms and form a chorus line because that does nothing to the sus- dramatic suspension of disbelief. I don't think I've seen Seven Brides or Seven Brothers very much. I'm thinking, I'm try- I was trying to think oh, of like how Going Courtin. Go Court- sing Going Courtin for us a little well, bit. Well, Going is go a great Court- song, but no, Bless Your Beautiful Hide. I mean, it's, it's, sing, sing, sing. No, I, no there, there is no <laughs> parallel universe in which you will get me to sing on the podcast. Don't. Okay, so while we're on the subject, while we're on the subject, what was the subject we were on? <laughs> Oh, the Eucharistic coherence document being uncontroversial. Um, Some of the, I would hope, uncontroversial passages of it have to do with the nature of, quote-unquote, Eucharistic worthiness, the nature of states of grace and sin, venial sin, mortal sin, the reception of communion uh, in various states and the effect on one's soul. I would hope that would be uncontroversial because, as you said, this is just the church's teaching perennial and unchanged from the year dot. But there were bishops who were basically writing letters to each other demonstrating, I would say, a lack of or imperfect grasp of that kind of teaching? Yeah, I would think that's true. Um, I, I think that is so true. So I don't know and that so it'll be uncontroversial. I think yeah, the most I, controversial thing of any debate about the text of the Eucharistic document will not have nothing to do with the mentioning or not mentioning of politicians. It will. It, what will be controversial to me is if we see the kind of basic sacramental um, theological lapses that we saw from some quarters in June. While we're on the subject um, of letters from bishops, I, I suppose another thing that has me a little bit, uh, <sighs> a little bit less than ordinarily enthusiastic for the U.S. bishops meeting is that there, there was this other thing that happened, you know, in the in the discussion about the Eucharistic coherence document that seems to have kind of fallen completely off the radar of those who might address it, and it's this: um, it was reported that a group of bishops sent a letter to um, Archbishop Gomez ahead of the June meeting of the USCCB requesting that the Eucharistic coherence document be taken from the schedule, which it was not, that was not taken from the schedule. But it was subsequently reported that some of the bishops who were listed as signatories to that letter um, were in fact not signatories, in fact did not give their consent to be listed as signatories or signers of that letter. And, um, you know, more than one and several bishops said they had not intended to be listed as signatories of that letter, and they were anyway, which suggests some issue uh, that has not been uh, resolved. And there has been neither, um, and this is not like conspiracy theory, there were bishops who said to us... Archbishop um, Shura Cincinnati Archbishop Schnur, told us, and among others, my name is on there, agree. it should not be on there, I it never should not agreed be. I to I did that. not agree to put my name on there. I believe that Cardinal Dolan had also said that he had requested that his name, you know, had initially said he would do it, but then requested that his name be taken off at the time it was sent, and, and others too. So um, I, I think, I, I don't quote me on that, because I, I think Dolan, but I'm having trouble remembering. Um, but the point is, uh, that issue, whatever it is, has has sort of been simply unresolved, unaddressed. Um, it's the ability to sort of memory hole things that, for me, you know, can be frustrating when you see these things that are real questions about leadership and fair play and these kinds of Integrity. things. Integrity. Just sort of get memory hold, you know? Yeah. So... Those are some things. But we will, of course, the meeting is next week, and we will, of course, be there. And we got our media credentials the other day, and we're heading to, we're heading to Baltimore, and we will be there, and we will bring you um, great coverage. Uh, um, Michelle LaRosa, our, uh, a member of our pillar team and a pillar editor, will be giving you daily kind of wrap-ups that are very clear, straightforward direction about what happened each day so that if you don't want to kind of follow it word for word, Michelle's going to bring you a great wrap up every single day. We'll bring you from the meeting some uh, reporting and analysis and um, uh, whatever happens, you we will let you know about it. And if not that much happens, then we will be in the bar. 
We'll be in the bar, um, conducting interviews and stuff. Obviously. Uh, and uh, so we'll be there, and you'll hear all about it. And that's the deal. And um, can I Ed, say? Do you can I say a nice thing? Can I say? Yeah, a... I'm going to say a nice thing too. There's a nice thing I want to talk about. If you want to too. Oh, I, I wasn't going to. I thought you were winding up for the show, but I was just. I wanted to say. Yeah, yeah. Something. I have a nice thing that I wanted to say, and you have a nice thing that you want to say, and okay. then we'll wrap. I just want to say before we let's end on some high notes. Ed, okay. What do you got? Before we go to Baltimore, I want to say a big, open, honest thank you to the USCCB staff who are going to be. Yeah, working like hell in the next couple of days, and it's going to be as putting on these big events always is very stressful, very difficult, and in general, the U- you know when we talk about the USCCB, we almost exclusively talk about the the bishops. bishops. And the bishops sitting on committees and the bishops, you know, sitting on the podium and the bishops making presentations of this and the bishops doing that. But the vast, you know, the USCCB is the typical bureaucratic iceberg. The vast majority of it sits below the waterline. Nobody mm-hmm. sees it. Nobody knows it's there. Nobody knows what's going on. I see you guys and you rock. <laughs> you do great work. Yeah. And, 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 and so many of the people who work at the conference are there because they love Christ and his church and want to do the work of the church. And, um, and, are. and it's hard. It is hard to work in a chancery. It is hard to work in the USCCB. It's hard to work in a parish. It's hard to work in the church for a lot of reasons. And, um, and it's a special, I think uh, it's hard and it's often unseen and it's a special kind of witness to Christ in, in the sense that I think the Lord, the Lord sees it. Yes. And we see it. Yes. And we appreciate it. Right. Okay. The nice thing that I wanted to say is this. I wanted to just talk about something really cool. Um, we went to the baptism of a, of a good friend's um, daughter on Sunday. And, um, you know, that happens. You go to people's baptisms. But this was a really special baptism because um, our friend adopted their daughter um, from foster care. And she has been in sort of our community's life now for more than three years um, but um, uh, there were a lot of things, and it was always known that she was uh, um, going to be adopted, or that she, you know, it was has been long been known that you know she was going to be adopted. But there were just sort of sna- court snags and court snags and court snags, and so the process of adopting their daughter from foster care was just years and years and years. And a lot of us, um, I hope, walked alongside this this couple as they adopted their daughter. Um, but there was just a lot of waiting and a lot of hope. And for them, it was hard to want to to want to baptize their daughter all this time, but not to be able to baptize her until the adoption is finalized, which is how these things ordinarily work. And uh, and so there was just a lot of waiting and a lot of hardship and a lot of crosses. And I think a lot of grace that came out of that. But one of the manifestations of the grace that was so cool is just this: here is a here is a family that is just sort of waiting and waiting and waiting for kind of the 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 fulfillment of this expectation and 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 to sort of be able to fully welcome their daughter not only into their family but into the, into the the body of Christ and uh, and so they finalized the adoption just a little bit ago and so they had the baptism on um, Sunday and they had it at the cathedral and Ed there were this was the most number of people I have ever seen at a baptism there were like I I don't there were so many kids there but I don't know I want to say more certainly more than 100 people there maybe more than 150 people there and and that's not you know in my experience all that common um and uh and it was so cool the baptism was sort of between masses and it was cool to watch people sort of walk into uh the church the baptistries in the back of the cathedral in denver to walk into the church and see like this huge crowd of people kind of gathered around and um, and, and to see people sort of come back, come back uh, to the baptistry, because I saw this huge crowd of people and then sort of share in the baptism and be a part of it. And, um, it was just, it was a, it was a neat spiritual consolation, this long to, for the, for the father, um, to welcome this sort of long awaited daughter into the, to the family of God. So 
Um, I mentioned that because, you know, we talk about ecclesiastical politics and stuff, but this was a really um, important, I think, spiritual moment in at least my ecclesial community, so I thought I would make mention. That's that. wonderful. That is... Yeah, it was really cool. They didn't say we baptize you, did they? <laughs> well, this is what's really interesting. Oh, is, no, 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 they didn't. <laughs> the, the, um, the daughter was... I, I was surprised that the couple, the, the, the parents who are friends... I didn't know we're like um, particularly inclined towards the extraordinary form of the mass, which I don't go to the extraordinary form of the mass very often. But the baptism was in the extraordinary form of the mass, and oh. part of the reason is there are all these um, beautiful prayers of beautiful and I think prayers of significance, prayers of um, of uh, deliverance um, in in, um, in in the rite of baptism in the extraordinary form that they they wanted just given the crosses of all of this, they wanted to, to, to be prayed and to share. And, and so it was really, so the baptism was in the extraordinary form. And uh, and it's funny, the priest who list, who did the baptism, uh, may listen to the show actually, really good guy and a good friend, but he he had not celebrated a baptism in the extraordinary form before. And I don't think he celebrates the extraordinary form very often. And so for a while he was reading the Latin with kind of this um, Italian accent that was sort of making me chuckle. And if you're listening, uh, Father Sam, it was kind of making me chuckle. Um <laughs> No, but my Latin teacher in grad school was from the Texas Panhandle and had the broadest Texas accent while reading <laughs> Latin. It would be like declaiming Cicero in this total cowboy accent, and it was it was wonderful. And it was yeah, this guy's totally just from Colorado. Colorado. I can totally talks. understand why you might feel it was sacramentally. Mm. He, he he. This guy normally talks um, in a um, in a uh, in a, you know like a person from Colorado and. He, um, his liter, you know, liturgical voice, a lot of priests have a liturgical voice and, you know, that I think sometimes like you, Ed, actually, I think like you, oh, a lot of priests go. have a liturgical voice that they're not even entirely sort of, um, aware of, um, using or saying or whatever, but they do, they have this sort of, but this priest's liturgical voice is, uh, is English-esque. Um, he, he sort of, uh, you hear priests do this, they sort of fall back into kind of this vaguely sort of continental when they have a liturgical voice. And his is English-esque, but his Latin was like, Deus in omnipotentes, Pater Dominum Nostra, Jesus, A to Christu, K te regenerave, text, spiritual song to acute, que que dated, tibi reminiscione. And you're like, whoa, this is, and I think he might've noticed, I haven't asked him about this because I thought I, I was going to ask him at the party, but he wasn't at the party, but I, I, I thought he might've noticed because uh, then all of a sudden he it dropped, but it was it was that was so that was delightful. No we, uh, no we, and I was listening even in the Latin for we, although it would be highly extraordinarily unusual to use the we in, in Latin. Uh, but no we, um, a great Italian accent, and really a moment of joy and the and the sort of cool presence, of, a cool even witnessing presence of um, of of incorporating this uh, daughter into the, into the body of Christ. So anyway, just that was a thing. That's great. Yeah. We'll be back next week with um, all the news that's fit to yap about from the Fall Assembly of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host, JD Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner, Ed Condon. <laughs> we'll be back next week, everybody. 